This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week, we honor the year of music for 2006, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2006. We also make the case for putting Barry White into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Plus, our Spotlight Museum is the Museum of Broadway in New York City. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2006. In music, iTunes had its one billionth download after starting only a few years earlier. After being on air for 42 years, the weekly edition of the British music show Top of the Pop stopped airing on television. Spotify was founded, changing music a decade later. Google bought YouTube for $1.65 billion, which somehow seems like a bargain now. Opera great Luciano Pavarotti performed for the final time when he sang at the Winter Olympics in Italy. David Bowie performed for the final time as well when he sang three songs at a charity concert in New York City. The Cirque du Soleil Beatles Love Show opened in Las Vegas. 2006 was also the year that artists like Lily Allen, Daughtry, and Taylor Swift debuted. The big pop culture event of 2006, though, was the success of the Disney Channel's High School Musical, which made stars out of its actors, broke television viewing records, and spawned way too many sequels to count. Bands that formed in 2006 included Beirut, The Bingo Players, Bon Iver, Daughtry, Black Veil Brides, Haim, Noah and the Whale, Vampire Weekend, Lady Antebellum, now known as Lady A, Pierce the Veil, LMFAO, The Glitch Mob, and Cage the Elephant. Bands that either broke up until their inevitable reunions or announced their hiatus included 3LW, Atomic Kitten, Biohazard, Bow Wow Wow, The Cardigans, Destiny's Child, Dishwalla, Fusebox, Cumbia Kings, NRG. Protocol, System of a Down, Black Sabbath, The Fugees, and Fear Factory. The police reunited for the first time since their breakup in the mid-1980s. Take That also reunited, but without Robbie Williams, who rejoined a decade later. The High School Musical soundtrack was the biggest album of the year. Rounding out the top 10 albums were Justin Timberlake, Nelly Furtado, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Carrie Underwood, Pink, Beyonce, The Beatles with the Cirque du Soleil love soundtrack, Daughtry, and Taylor Swift. Other albums that were critical darlings that year included those by Amy Winehouse, Muse, My Chemical Romance, and Arctic Monkeys. Daniel Powder's song, Bad Day, which was American Idol's loser send-off song at a time, was the biggest-selling single in America. Other big singles were Sean Paul's Temperature, Nelly Furtado and Timbaland's Promiscuous, James Blunt's You're Beautiful, Shakira and Wyclef Jean's Hips Don't Lie, Natasha Bedingfield's Unwritten, Gnarls Barkley's Crazy, 
Chameleonaire and Crazy Bones Riding, Justin Timberlake and Timberland's Sexy Back, and Beyonce and Slim Thug's Check On It. In country music, the big stories all seem to be about arrests and divorces. Hank Williams Jr. was arrested for assaulting a teenage waitress, for instance. Willie Nelson was arrested for drug possession. No shocker there. Lynn Anderson was arrested for drunk driving. Sarah Evans divorced her husband after finding out he was having an affair with the family's nanny. Always a classy move. There was one piece of good news, though. Keith Urban married actress Nicole Kidman. Some of the big albums of the year in country music were released by Keith Urban, George Strait, Kelly Pickler, the Dixie Chicks, now known as the Chicks, Taylor Swift, Alan Jackson, Kenny Chesney, Dirks, Bentley, Johnny Cash, and Rascal Flatts. George Strait passed Conway Twitty for the most number one songs on the Billboard Hot Country Singles Chart when he got his 41st chart topper. George would end his career with 44 number one songs on that chart. As far as big country songs of the year, they included Carrie Underwood's Before He Cheats, George Strait's Give It Away, The Wreckers' Leave the Pieces, Rascal Flatt's My Wish, Kenny Chesney's Summertime, Sugarland's Want To, Bon Jovi and Jennifer Nettles' Who Says You Can't Go Home, Dirks Bentley's Every Mile of Memory, Brad Paisley and Dolly Parton's When I Get Where I'm Going, and Josh Turner's Your Man. In hip-hop, the biggest albums were Jay-Z's Kingdom Come, T.I.'s King, The Game's Doctor's Advocate, Nas's Hip-Hop is Dead, Young Jeezy's The Inspiration, Shady Records' Eminem Presents The Re-Up, Ludacris's Release Therapy, Snoop Dogg's The Blue Carpet Treatment, Bow Wow's The Price of Fame, and Busta Rhymes' The Big Bang. The biggest hip-hop singles included Chameleonaire's Ridin', Nelly's Grills, T.I.'s What You Know, Fort Minor's Where'd You Go, LL Cool J and Jennifer Lopez's Control Myself, Eminem's Shake That, Jules Santana's There It Go, Bubba Sparks's Ms. New Booty, Jay-Z's Show Me What You Got, and Young Dro's Shoulder Lean. In dance music, the label Head Candy was bought by Ministry of Sound. Calvin Harris built up his fan base on MySpace and began his career. The Hi-Fi Music Festival started. Daft Punk used their famed Pyramid stage for the very first time in concert. The top 10 DJs, according to DJ Mag's Top 100 DJs poll, were Paul Van Dyke, Armin Van Buren, Tiesto, Christopher Lawrence, DJ Dan, Ferry Corsten, Sasha, John Digweed, Above and Beyond, and Deep Dish. Big dance albums included Faithless's To All New Arrivals, Basement Jax's Crazy Itch Radio and Scream self-titled album. Big dance songs for the year included Eric Pritz's Proper Education, Armin Van Helden's My My My, Justice's We Are Your Friends, Ferry Corsten's Fire, Royk Sops, What Else Is There? David Guetta's Love Don't Let Me Go, Cass Fox's Touch Me, Freestyler's Painkiller, Chris Lake's Changes, and Paul Oakenfold and the late Brittany Murphy's song Faster Kill Pussycat. The top Latin artists of 2006 included Daddy Yankee, Wizen and Yandel, 
Don Omar, RBD, Mana, Shakira, Juanes, RKM and Ken Y, Mariano Barba, Tito El Bambino, and Aventura. Musicals or revivals of musicals that were popular that year included Chaplin, A Chorus Line, Le Miserable, High Fidelity, Mary Poppins, Three Penny Opera, and Tarzan. Musical films that opened that year included Dreamgirls, Happy Feet, and Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny. It's actually a really good movie. Famous artists who passed away in 2006 included James Brown on Christmas Day, no less. Billy Preston, Lou Rawls, Gene Pitney, Buck Owens, Bismillah Khan, Raj Kumar, rappers Jay Dilla and Proof, Gerald Levert, Wilson Pickett, Boz Burl of King Crimson, Robert Lockwood Jr., June Pointer of the Pointer Sisters, reggae singer Desmond Decker, Clades Charles Smith of Cool and the Gang, Gene McFadden of McFadden and Whitehead, opera singer Robert McFerrin, singers Gloria Jones, Ruth Brown, Cindy Walker, Rocio Gerardo, and Rocio Dercal, Atlantic Records co-founder Ahmet Erdogan, Freddie Fender, Sandy West of The Runaways, Mark Spoon of Jam and Spoon, and Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd. At award ceremonies for the music of 2006, the Dixie Chicks, now known as the Chicks, won Album, Record, and Song of the Year at the Grammy Awards, while Carrie Underwood won Best New Artist. Panic at the Disco won Video of the Year for I Write Sins, Not Tragedies at the MTV Video Music Awards. At the American Music Awards, Rascal Flatt won Artist of the Year. At the Billboard Music Awards, Chris Brown won Artist of the Year. Jennifer Hudson won Entertainer of the Year at the Soul Train Music Awards. Bon Jovi, Carrie Underwood, Shakira, Kenny Chesney, Chameleonaire, and Nickelback won the music categories at the People's Choice Awards. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Athens, France, Lordi from Finland won for the song Hard Rock Hallelujah. Kenny Chesney won Entertainer of the Year at the Country Music Association Awards, and he also won Entertainer of the Year at the Academy of Country Music Awards. The Arctic Monkeys won Best British Album for Whatever People Say I Am, That's What I'm Not, and Take That won Best Song for Patience at the Brit Awards. Nelly Furtado won Best Album for Loose, while Nelly Furtado and Timbaland won Best Song for Promiscuous, and Nelly Furtado won Artist of the Year, all of that at the Juno Awards. Bernard Fanning won Album of the Year for TN Sympathy, and Eskimo Joe won Single of the Year for Black Fingernails Red Wine at the Aria Music Awards. At the Tony Awards, Spring Awakening won Best Musical, and Company won Best Revival of a Musical. The Pulitzer Prize for Music was won by Yehudi Weiner for Piano Concerto Chiavi in Mano. Musically at the Academy Awards, Melissa Etheridge won Best Original Film Song for I Need to Wake Up from the movie An Inconvenient Truth, that's the Al Gore climate change movie, and the score for the movie Babel won Best Original Film Score. The Arctic Monkeys won the Mercury Prize for the album for Whatever People Say I Am, That's What I'm Not. And the first Canadian Polaris Prize was given to Final Fantasy for their album 
he poos clouds. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony took place on March 13th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. At the ceremony, as one would expect, the Sex Pistols didn't even bother to show up. Instead, they sent a letter where they insulted the hall by calling it, among other things, quote, a urine stain, end quote. Typical Sex Pistols, I'd say. Black Sabbath were there, but they didn't perform. Herb Albert and Jerry Moss, who are the heads of A&M Records, were inducted into the Non-Performer Lifetime Achievement Award category. They were the last people to be inducted into that category. In the Performers category, the Hall inducted Black Sabbath, the Sex Pistols, Leonard Skinner, Blondie, and this next jazz great. Trumpet player Miles Davis was born on May 26, 1926 in Alton, Illinois and grew up in Illinois in an affluent family. His mother, a classically trained pianist, exposed him to music early and gave him his first trumpet at the age of nine. While still in high school, Miles played in a nightclub in Chicago called the Rum Boogie Club. He became the director of the house band there. He also had a daughter with his high school sweetheart, Irene Berth. Miles' mother wanted him to go to Fisk University, while his father told him that he should go to Juilliard in New York City. Davis listened to his father and went to college at the Juilliard School, which was then known as the Institute of Musical Arts, in 1944, but ended up dropping out because, as he put it, they concentrated too much on European music. He decided to play the club scene with his mentor and friend Charlie Parker, playing at the famed club Birdland in their house band. 1944 to 1948 is known as Miles' bebop era. It was during this time with Charlie Parker and his friend and fellow jazz man Dizzy Gillespie that he helped to develop the bebop style of jazz, along with stretching the genre to include modal music, cool jazz, and even rock music. He also had another child with Irene and also started a decades-long on-again, off-again relationship with drugs and alcohol. 1948 to 1950 was the Miles Davis Nonet era as he experimented with using typical non-jazz instruments like the French horn and the tuba. At this point, Miles worked with greats like Gil Evans and Jerry Mulligan and got himself off of drugs for a time, deciding to go the vegetarian route. During this time, he received criticism from black musicians for having white musicians in his band, but Davis didn't care about a musician's color, only about a musician's playing ability. He started influencing the West Coast version of jazz called Cool Jazz with all of his experimentation culminating in recording sessions that would be released a decade later as the album Birth of the Cool. Starting in 1948, Miles went back and forth to Paris, France, the first time in order to play at the inaugural Paris Jazz Festival. Paris fell in love with jazz during this period and embraced jazz musicians wholeheartedly. Paris also left an impression on Miles. 
He played in clubs, hobnobbed with intellectuals, and had an affair with actress and singer Juliette Grieco. He took a liking to Paris, where he thought at the time that France treated black people in general and black musicians in particular much better than in the United States. A later confrontation and beating at the hands of New York City police officers would cement that feeling about America and race relations. During his tours in France, Miles recorded classic albums like Miles Ahead in 1957, Walkin' in 1956, and his live album In Concert at the Olympia, Paris, in 1957. When he came back to America in 1949, Miles' drug problems also came back after he had become depressed. His drug problems started creating financial difficulties for him. He also got back together with Irene Berth and fathered another child. However, his music and the drugs took over his life and he distanced himself from Irene and his own children. In 1951, he signed a recording contract with Prestige Records, which gave him some money, but he spent it all on drugs. His life got to the point over the next couple of years that he was playing gigs just so that he could score more heroin, which he was completely hooked on. His drug habit got so bad that it finally made him go live with his father for a time in 1953 in order to deal with his addictions. In 1954, fresh from temporarily kicking his drug habit, Miles moved back to New York City and started working with the Miles Davis Quartet. While there, Miles' style switched from bebop to hardbop after having been influenced by pianist Ahmad Jamal. 1956's album Blue Haze and 1957's album Walkin' helped to usher in the hardbop era. Miles developed his raspy voice in late 1955 when he had an operation to remove some polyps from his larynx. The doctors told him to remain quiet during his recovery, but he just couldn't help himself and started screaming during an argument, permanently damaging his vocal cords. In 1955, Miles made a comeback performance at the Newport Jazz Festival. Columbia Records label head George Avakian signed Miles to a contract after hearing him at the festival, even though the recording contract with Prestige Records still had four more albums left on it. Avakian still got Miles to get material together in the interim and got Miles to form the Miles Davis Quintet with the legendary John Coltrane. The first thing that the quintet did was to record four albums in two months to take care of that prestige contract. Those were released in 1957, 1958, 1960, and 1961. In fact, a lot of Miles' albums would be recorded in one year and then spread out for later release. For instance, the above-mentioned quintet albums were actually recorded in 1956 in May and October, to be precise. The first album for Columbia Records was Roundabout Midnight. Miles then left in 1956 for a while to tour Europe, where he rekindled his relationship with Juliet Grieco, which became a decades-long affair. When he got back to America to continue work with the quintet, he discovered that John Coltrane had picked up a drug habit, so he fired Coltrane primarily because he didn't want to fall off the wagon and get back on, 
onto drugs, especially with Coltrane being around influencing him. Miles returned to Paris in 1957 to record and play. Then he came back to New York City and got the quintet back together, but also added back in Coltrane, who had kicked his drug habit by then. Miles decided that he was sick of touring and wanted to settle down for a while as he had met another woman, Frances Taylor, who he married in 1959 and divorced in 1968. Columbia Records recommended that he collaborate with Gil Evans. From 1957 to 1962, Miles and Gil made five albums together which showcased different styles, like pieces with orchestral units and Miles playing different instruments, such as the flugelhorn. This period also contained his 1959 classic album, Kind of Blue, which is still considered to be one of the greatest albums ever recorded. In the early 1960s, Miles went through a number of lineup changes, including working with Sonny Rollins, Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, Wayne Shorter, and Tony Williams. Miles also went back to touring. Miles started to have health problems, though. He injured his hip during a tour of Japan and had to have hip replacement surgery in 1965. The surgery didn't work, and he re-injured his hip later in the year. In 1966, he had a liver infection, which put him back in the hospital, and right around this time, his album sales started to tank. He also started to drink alcohol again. He divorced Frances Taylor in 1968, then married singer Betty Mabry that same year, only to divorce her the very next year. Thankfully, around this time, he started a relationship with actress Cicely Tyson, which lasted for decades, including their marriage from 1981 to 1989. The marriage and the relationship, of course, had its bumps because, well, Miles, you know. In the mid to late 1960s, Miles experimented with not using time signatures in his music. The result were albums like 1966's Miles Smiles and 1968's Miles in the Sky. This period, from 1968 to 1975, was known as Miles' Electric Era. In 1969, Davis wanted to bring his music to a whole new generation who had grown up on Motown and James Brown. By that time, Davis had started experimenting with electronic music and wanted to take it to the next level. He recorded his next album over three days in August. A lot of the album was improvised. The post-production was interesting as well. A lot of the songs were shorter versions pieced together to make a longer song. Song lengths ranged for anywhere from 4 minutes to 27 minutes. Also, there were multiple instruments playing different things at the same time. For instance, two bass players, one playing double bass and the other playing bass guitar. Davis also incorporated funk into the songs. And on March 30th, 1970, this double album, Bitches Brew, was released. It became an influential album for 70s funk artists such as Sly Stone and George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. It also influenced Radiohead on their album OK Computer and spurred interest in jazz again in the mainstream, helping to create a new style of jazz called Jazz Fusion. 
The rest of the early part of the 1970s saw Miles experimenting more with jazz fusion, but between 1975 and 1980, Miles decided that he had had enough for a while and he took a hiatus from music. Unfortunately, during his time, he also fell completely off the wagon, falling into the usual trope of sex, drugs, and, well, more sex and drugs. If John Lennon, in fact, had his famous lost weekend, which lasted for 18 months, then Miles had a lost year, which lasted for a good five years. He did do some recordings, at least he tried to during this time period, but the drugs took their toll on his finances yet again. Miles started another comeback in the early 1980s. However, serious health issues threatened to derail his plans this time around. In 1982, Miles suffered a stroke, which paralyzed his right hand, which is the hand you primarily play the trumpet with. After getting treatment from an acupuncturist for a few months, he was able to play again. He also managed to kick drugs and alcohol after a doctor told him that he wouldn't survive if he kept taking them. The stroke also scared him straight this time, but he was also by now a diabetic and had to take insulin, which made him difficult to be around. He got back to recording, though, and took up a new hobby, painting, which he became very good at. He also started acting, appearing on the TV show Miami Vice for an episode and in the movie Scrooged as a street musician. The rest of the 1980s were spent playing and collaborating with artists like Prince and appearing on the Artists Against Apartheid protest album Sun City. In the late 1980s, his health caught back up with him, this time permanently. He collapsed during a concert in Madrid in 1988. The tabloid newspaper Star Magazine ran a story that said that Miles was suffering from AIDS in 1989. Miles blamed an ex-lover for starting the rumor, but the truth was that his body was failing him, possibly from all the decades that he spent abusing it. He continued recording and doing performances and started getting Lifetime Achievement Awards and such. His final performance was at the Hollywood Bowl on August 25th, 1991. Just over a month later, he was gone. Miles Davis passed away from a combination of a stroke, pneumonia, and respiratory failure on September 28, 1991, in Santa Monica, California, at the age of 65. And maybe that's the thing. As huge a genius as Miles was, his demons were just as huge. He abused drugs, he abused alcohol, and according to some reports, he even physically abused at least one of his women. He definitely cheated on all of them. His real love of his life, though, was always his music. He sacrificed everything for it. His women, his family, and unfortunately, eventually, his own life. Perhaps the reason why he was such a genius was because of all the abuse that he gave himself with all the drugs and the alcohol. We'll never know, but it is sad when you think about it. On a more positive note, though, 
Miles Davis released 60 studio albums, 39 live albums, 46 compilation albums, and 57 singles. He was nominated for 32 Grammy Awards, winning eight of them. He is one of the most influential musicians of not only the 20th century music, but in all of Western music, no matter the century, going all the way back to classical music. Miles's contributions and flat-out inventions of musical genres gave him the nickname the Picasso of Jazz. He was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1998, and he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2006. Presented for induction by jazz superstar Herbie Hancock, who played with Miles, Miles Davis, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2006, and we have put a selection of his music onto this week's music podcast playlist, the link to which is in the show notes. Before we go any further, we'd like to tell you that there is now a Music History In-Depth podcast where we go more in-depth on a few of the events that happened in music history for that particular week. The Music History In-Depth podcast drops every Tuesday on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from, as does our Music History Today podcast, which goes over the daily events in music history. The Music History Today podcast drops daily, including weekends, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to this podcast. Here's something that's going to completely shock you. Barry White is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I know, right? The Maestro of Love is not in a hall that already has soul singers like Otis Redding, Marvin Gaye, the Reverend Al Green, etc., etc. The man pretty much responsible for at least a quarter of the entire world's population because a lot of people were having sex to his music. The dude's voice could make the word gingivitis sound sexy. Don't believe me? It actually happened. David Letterman's top 10 list once had top 10 words that sound romantic when spoken by Barry White. It's on YouTube if you want to check it out, but damned if he didn't make even the word gingivitis sound like it was sexy time. Now, I can't believe that the hall has put me in a position where I have to make the case for Barry White to be inducted, but it's not a perfect world, so here we are. So, to the tale of the tape we go. In his lifetime, Barry White released 20 studio albums and 13 compilation albums. Of those, eight went top 40 on the United States pop chart, with two of those eight going top 10, including 1974's Can't Get Enough going to number one. On the American R&B charts, it was seven number ones for Barry, including his first four albums going number one. Barry also released 60 singles. Of those, 11 hit the top 40 pop charts, with six of those 11 going top 10, including 1974's Can't Get Enough of Your Love going to number one. On the U.S. R&B charts, 27 hit the top 40, with 14 of those 27 hitting the top 10, including six hitting number one. 
worldwide. Barry had 20 gold and 10 platinum singles, plus 106 gold albums, with 41 of those going platinum. Barry sold over 100 million records, making him one of the biggest selling artists of all time, regardless of genre. He also influenced at least two generations of R&B singers, along with helping to bring the orchestral sound to R&B with his Love Unlimited Orchestra. His deep, smooth voice helped to birth an awful lot of babies with songs like It's Ecstasy When You Lay Down Next to Me, What Am I Gonna Do With You, You're the First, The Last, My Everything, Never Never Gonna Give You Up, and I'm Gonna Love You Just a Little More, Baby. His famous catchphrases, Show You Right, and Take Off That Brazier, My Dear, became household phrases. Plus, like I've already said countless times by now, the dude's music helped to create a quarter of the world's population, more than likely. I'm sure someone's done a study on that one. You can't get much more rock and roll than that. Put Barry White in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame already, please. He is long overdue. And to prove it, we have put his music onto this week's podcast music playlist, the link to which, as always, is in the show notes. There's a relatively new museum in the heart of Times Square in New York City that's dedicated to the history of Broadway shows that you may not actually be aware of. The Museum of Broadway is in the heart of the Broadway Theater District in New York City at 145 West 45th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. The museum was supposed to open in 2021, but the pandemic put that little dream to bed for about a year. As of April 1st, the museum is supposed to be open seven days a week from 9.30 a.m. to 8 p.m., at least until winter when the hours may shift a little bit. Museumofbroadway.com is their website, and that website will be in the show note in the links. Back around 2011 or so, Lin-Manuel Miranda was coming off of a very successful production that he created called In the Heights. The show had gone on to be nominated for 13 Tony Awards, winning four of them. Of course, when faced with such a greatly successful Broadway show, you kind of left wondering, how do you possibly top that? When Lin-Manuel was going on vacation, he picked up a biography in the airport that was written by Ron Chernow called Alexander Hamilton. For some reason known only to creatives like us whose brains work like this, after reading a few chapters, he started picturing Hamilton's life as a musical, and he would give the play and the music a hip-hop soundtrack because, seriously, uh, who wouldn't? I mean, sure, that made perfect sense. Not really. Around that time, though, then-President Barack Obama was doing an event at the White House called An Evening of Poetry. He invited Lin-Manuel to perform parts of In the Heights. Lin-Manuel decided instead to road test parts of his Hamilton project, uh, 
because who wouldn't want to try something brand new in front of the President of the United States and a national audience on television? No pressure. None whatsoever. Turns out, Lin-Manuel's gamble actually paid off. The response was overwhelmingly positive, so much so that he decided to continue with the project and flush it out a little bit more. In 2013, he did a workshop at Vassar College where he had most of Hamilton worked out by then. At that point, it was actually called the Hamilton Mixtape. That actually went pretty well, so he finished the musical and started an off-Broadway run with some major retweaking, including gutting most of the cast. He then moved the production off-Broadway, where it ran in previews for what seemed like forever, drawing huge word of mouth. Then, he moved it to Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater, and on August 6, 2015, after taking in almost $30 million in ticket sales during the preview alone, Hamilton officially opened on Broadway. To say that the response was positive would be the understatement of the millennium. Hamilton broke box office records and has sold out so many performances that even with Lin-Manuel and the original cast no longer there, I still don't think that you can get a ticket. It also tied the record for the most Tony Award wins, winning 11 out of 16 nominations, including Best Musical. It couldn't win all 16 nominations because some of the cast members were actually going up against each other in the same category. As far as its effect on pop culture and history goes, Hamilton actually ended up doing a lot. First off, it helped to introduce a couple of generations to a lesser-known member of the Founding Fathers. It also made Alexander Hamilton so popular that when it came time to redesign the $10 bill, rather than replacing him off of the bill, he was left on the bill. The musical helped to bring hip-hop to the Broadway audience, and it also gave a huge boost to the careers of the now-famous original cast members. For instance, Lin-Manuel Miranda himself has been nominated for numerous other awards for other projects, including Academy Awards for the movie Encanto. Ariana DeBose won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her role in another musical, Steven Spielberg's version of the musical West Side Story. There's also other now-famous original cast members, David Diggs, Leslie Odom Jr., Anthony Ramos, Philippa Sue, Renee Elise Goldsberry, Christopher Jackson, Neil Haskell, Jonathan Groff, Jasmine Cephas Jones, and the list goes on and on. A film version of the musical was also nominated for various awards, including an Emmy and a Golden Globe Award. And the original cast album won a Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater Album. Hamilton the Musical and the Phenomenon officially premiered on Broadway on August 6, 2015, and mementos from the show are in the relatively new Museum of Broadway in the heart of the Broadway Theater District in New York City. And as an added bonus, we have put the Hamilton soundtrack onto this week's podcast playlist 
The link, as always, is in the show notes. The Music Halls of Fame podcast is part of the Music History Today network, which can be found under Music History Today on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from, and also on our YouTube page under Music History Today. Thank you very much for listening.